on April 16th, 2007, a young, very disturbed man, in less than 25 minutes, took the lives of 32 people and then his own life. Certainly for the Virginia Tech family, that will be a day that will live in infamy. It is a day of just horrific evil, obviously, as far as an event, it is unparalleled in human history. It's an event for some that, that challenges our faith, that, that doubts the existence of God, or if He's there, how, how good can He be, or how all-powerful can He be? It leaves us wanting answers, and it doesn't seem to offer a lot. On April 17th, the next day, Virginia Tech held a convocation memorial. The President of the United States, the Governor of the State of Virginia, and a number of religious leaders were there to bring answers, to, to bring hope, to bring strength. It's my opinion, they failed miserably. The President of the United States said these people were in the wrong place at the wrong time. What does that mean? I mean, the, the reality of it is they were all right where they were supposed to be. Governor Kane challenged them, encouraged them to find strength in a spirit of community. Of course, he's saying that to a nation that has increasingly grown away from community. We're a nation of individuals. And then the religious leaders got up. The rabbi read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. The Muslim quoted from the Quran and appealed to Allah. The Buddhist appealed to the Dalai Lama and quoted from his wise sayings. And then the Christian got up. The Reverend William H. King. And never once, never once even said the name Jesus. Never once quoted Scripture. They were looking. They're looking. They're listening. They're wanting something. And the Christian gave them warm, fuzzy, pious dribble. All of them. The spiritual and governmental leaders of our nation left them with nothing. Then kind of a spontaneous event happened. Somebody in the audience yelled out, Let's go Hokies! And a chant began across the crowd. And you know, probably for a moment there, there was a spirit of community. Probably for a moment there, there was a, a, a sense of strength and a, and a sense of peace. But not an answer. Let's go Hokies is not an answer in the onslaught of that kind of evil. Oh gosh, let's go Hokies isn't even an answer for life's daily problems. What, what is let's go Hokies going to do in the middle of a divorce? What is Let's Go Hokies going to do when you're waiting on that report from the hospital? What does Let's Go Hokies mean to that some 3,300 families for whom tomorrow has taken on a very new meaning? Is there any real strength and, and hope to be found? Are there any real answers out there? 
We've been studying the book of Ephesians now for several weeks. You know, that was a letter written by Paul to this church in Ephesus. It was written in 60 to 62 A.D., around there. Gosh, it's a long time ago, isn't it? That just seems like a, a whole other world, a whole, a whole other kind of people. But you know what? They're just like us. You know who resided in the city of Ephesus? Divorce. Death. War. Mean people. Disturbed people. The same people, the same events, the same issues that live here in the United States lived right there in Ephesus. And Paul had a, a prayer for them in the face of that, in the onslaught of that. He had a prayer for them, a desire for them. Could, could a prayer prayed in 60 have something for us in 2007? Let's look at it and see. Would you turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be reading verse 15 to 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, as always, I encourage you to get one there in the pew. Open it up and read along with us. You'll find the page number and the bullets in there. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 15. It says there, This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the glorious riches of His inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe, according to the working of His vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put everything under His feet and appointed Him as head over everything for the church, which is His body. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Would you believe that this passage I just read to you was one sentence? And you're thinking, wait a minute, that, that's the way you started the last sermon. That's right, this is another whopper. You know, I told you last time, verses 3 through 14 was one sentence, the longest sentence, as a matter of fact, in the Bible. Now, you'll look down there and you'll notice in your Greek translation, you'll see some periods provided and it's broken up into sentences. But in the Greek, it is just one sentence. What I didn't tell you last time is that there's actually eight very long sentences in the letter to the Ephesians. As a matter of fact, if you'll add it up now, you'll realize we've just read the entire chapter, only three sentences. In all of chapter 1, this long sentence we just read, very complicated, very complex, and yet would you believe that all those words making one sentence had one simple prayer request? I pray that you really, really know God. He's not praying for their salvation. 
He's not praying that they would become Christians, that they would take on the name of Christ. They've already done that. They've already had that event. They've already had that moment in their lives. What He's praying for them is a, is a new level of intimacy, a new depth in their walk and in their relationship with God. Because you see, our strength and our hope is found in a relationship with God. Paul prays this because we live in a world where Virginia Techs happen. You know, as I look at that sentence, or as I, as I think about that sentence, it, it probably actually needs to be made a little better. Because I think you can have a relationship with God and still not be ready for this world. It's not just having a relationship, it is being in a growing and a thriving relationship with God. That's what Paul is praying for them here. Now, Paul begins our, our passage here in verse 15, and he, and he notates two things about them. He says, you know, I, I, I've noticed, I've heard about, think of that, I've heard. He's in prison in Rome. I've heard about your faith in God and your love for each other. We need to stop and camp on that for just a moment. He commends, he applauds their faith in God and their love for each other. The, the word was out when people went to, to visit that church in Ephesus. That's what they left talking about. That's what they noticed. Here's Paul in prison in Rome and he's heard about it. The gossip, the word, the news on this church. That's what they're saying. And you can't help but wonder, gosh, wonder. I wonder when people visit Colonial Heights Baptist, what did they see? What, what did they leave talking about? When, when people are in your presence, what do they see? What do they leave talking about? You know, it's my belief that the two things noted here are not just two things noted here. I think these are about the two most significant and the most important things that can be noted about a church or could be noted about individuals. Why do I say that? Let's think about it. Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, let's just try to, to get the enormity of that statement. There's not another verse in the Bible that says, without X, without this, you can't please God. There's only one thing that that kind of statement is made about. And it doesn't say without faith, it's going to be really hard to please God. It'll be really difficult to please God. Without faith, most of you won't please. No, it says without faith, it's impossible. You can't do it. You won't do it. God's not pleased when faith is not present. That's a challenging thought. You know why? Because most of us in here would say we have faith. And most of us in here don't. What do you mean? I, I do too. You know what? We do a lot of things for God. Most of them are not in faith. I give, but I give what I can afford. I serve, but I serve where it fits into my timetable, where it fits into my comfort zone and where I'm confident I can do it. I, I forgive when all the right conditions have been met. They, they've asked for forgiveness. They've changed. They, they won't do it again. You see, we do a lot of God-like stuff, but we do it when it meets my power, when it meets my understanding, when it meets my timetable, when it meets my resources. Faith means I've stepped out and I've taken on something that's utterly impossible without throwing myself at the feet of Christ. 
It's not going to happen unless He makes the time. Unless He makes the resources. It's not going to happen unless He gives me the wisdom. Unless He gives me the strength. See, we can do a lot of things. That doesn't mean it's being done in faith. That doesn't mean it's being done in total dependence upon God making it happen. And yet, without faith, we can't please Him. And when you think about that, it makes it kind of awesome what we're reading here about this church in Ephesus. That's what people were talking about. Apparently, this church and these individuals were taking on God-sized tasks. It was very clear. It was very obvious. But it was the power and work and wisdom of God. There's no way this could be happening. They talked about these people's faith. What about this love? Well, Jesus says, by this, all people will know you're my disciples. By your love. For one another. Here again, that kind of statement is not made about another characteristic, a characteristic or aspect of our life with God. Only one thing does Jesus say notates, points out, marks us as His followers to the world. Do you realize this is actually a place where God, or where, yeah, where God gives the world an opportunity to judge us? They have a right to walk in this room, evaluate how we relate, and determine whether we're true followers of Christ or not. You know, I guess as, as we come to church, we get in our car on Sunday morning or Saturday night. Boy, as we're driving there, maybe the one thing that ought to be on our mind, maybe the one prayer request ought to be this. Lord, when I get there, show me who I need to love. Not, Lord, make our church a loving church. Lord, who do I need to love? Who do I need to touch? Who do I need to encourage? Who do I need to help? Who can I minister to? God, give me your eyes and let me see them. And then give me the obedience to do it. Guys, what if we were all doing that? What if we were all living by faith? Guys, would, would, would all of the southeastern United States be saying, Man, have, have you heard of, have you seen that church up in Colonial Heights? You know, I don't think that's something we're to imagine or dream about. I believe we have a biblical mandate to strive after it. We're to strive to be that kind of church. Paul's talking. Paul's praying for a church that is very strong in the Lord. Are you seeing that? And yet, what is his prayer for him? Well, let's look at that. You see that here in, in verse 17. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father... I like that phrase, the, the glorious Father. Some good Greek grammar going on here. Literally, it means the Father of all glory. He is the source of glory. Glory is not this independent object out here that describes God, but rather the glory comes from God. He is the source of glory. He is the source of beauty. He is the source of, of splendor and radiance and power. You see, it's, it's almost that it's wrong to say God is awesome. He's more than awesome. God's the owner of awesome. And that's my dad. My dad is the owner of awesome. That's who Paul's praying to. That's who you and I pray to. My dad, owner of awesome. That's who we're praying to. And what does he pray for here? He says, God, for, for these Christians, for these believers, for this great church you have in Ephesus, God, I pray that you'd give them wisdom. Now, that word wisdom is more than just being smart. Have you ever known somebody that's, that's real smart, but in all reality, they're just kind of bone stupid? You know what I'm talking about? 
You know, they know a lot of stuff, but they don't know how to take it and do anything with it. They don't know how to apply it to where people live and, and where the world is. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom knows a lot of facts. Wisdom knows a lot of knowledge, but it also knows what to do with them. It knows how to walk with those facts. So what Paul's praying here is, Lord, I pray you give them insight to the facts. What, what are the facts? Well, that's what we learned in the sentence that precedes this, isn't it? Verses 3 through 14 taught us a lot of facts about God's love for us and what God's love had done for us. So it's almost as if Paul's praying here, Lord, listen, they know the fact of your selection. You remember studying that? You see that there in your highlights on the sermon notes? Lord, they know the fact of how you selected them. They know the fact of how you sacrificed for them. They know the fact of how you sealed them in your love. But, oh God, Oh God, would you give them insight into what that really means in their lives? Lord, would you let them see what that actually cost you? Would you let them understand how that needs to come into their life? The effect that that needs to have in their life? How they're to walk in these facts? In other words, Paul is praying, God, I want these facts to come to life. I don't want it just to be something they know in a book. Let it come to life inside them. You know, I think probably, and I... I can't imagine that most of you wouldn't totally agree with me about this. I, I believe the single most important event in a person's life is that moment, that day they get saved. Hands down. You know why? Because until that moment, you don't have life. Your life is nothing. Your life amounts to nothing. It will mean nothing until that moment. You're just on your path to hell. You might look good on the way to hell. You might be very successful on the way to hell. But you're going to hell. Bob, but that moment I'm saved, now I've got life. I've got a life that counts. I've got a life that can add up. I've got a life that can be rewarded. And it all begins with that moment of salvation. But as significant, as important, and as big as that moment is, folks, the New Testament never says that's the end goal. You go through the Gospels, you never see Jesus say, I'm inviting you to an event where you'll be saved. I'm inviting you to a decision. I'm inviting you to a moment. No, Jesus says, I invite you to come follow me. I invite you to come live the rest of your life with me. I invite you into a relationship. The salvation is how we begin that relationship. But folks, it is to go on from there. We're not to ever be satisfied that we've had the events. It's got to grow. Because we live in a world where Virginia Tech's happen. Now, as Paul begins to elaborate, that's, that's the prayer. God, I pray that they really, really know You. But he elaborates on that prayer. And in that knowledge of God, in that relationship with God, he prays that three things might happen. He says, God, I pray that they would again get this wisdom, this revelation about the, the, the calling and its hope. The hope of His calling. Now, the calling is what we read and learned about in verses 3 through 14. We were called from death to life. We were called from darkness to light. We, we've got life now. We've been called to that by God. And that's what gives hope. And Paul's praying, I want them to have, to know, and to experience that hope. It's a very important prayer for us. 
Because we tend to not put our hope in the right thing. We tend not to put our hope in the one hope that God's given us. Our hope, our New Testament hope, is that moment, is that day that Jesus Christ is visibly, physically ruling on His throne in Jerusalem on this earth. That's our hope. That's when all things are made right. That's when war and disease and death are gone. That's where every wrong justice is brought. That is our hope. But that's not what we hope for. No, we put a lot of our hope into this world. These, these kids over here, they're hoping SOLs go pretty well this week, right? And we hope for a good report from the hospital. And, and, and we hope we're going to get a raise. We hope we're going to get a promotion. We hope that thing is going to get fixed. We hope that relationship is going to get better. We hope some relationships just go away. Think about what, 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 when have you last said, I hope it was for something in this world. Is that wrong? No. No, it's not wrong to hope things get better. It's not wrong to hope something comes about. But a lifetime of pouring your hope in the things of this world will drain you of life, will drain you of strength, and will drain you of answers. There is only one hope that feeds us. There's only one hope that when our life is properly anchored in it, continues to give us strength and continues to give us answers and continues to fuel hope in our lives. And it's in the return of the Lord. That is our hope. That's where strength is. And then Paul prays and he goes on here, this, this, this phrase about the, the glorious riches of his inheritance. Now, we like that part, don't we? Here's a little curveball. There's a little twist here in this phrase. Quite often in the New Testament, when you're reading about the inheritance, you are reading about the inheritance that is to come to us. That's not what this is referring to. This inheritance being referred to actually belongs to God. So, well, what's God's inheritance? You. You are the abundant wealth. You are God's treasure. You are God's inheritance. You know what Paul's praying here? God, that you've loved them so much. You, you place so much value on them. May they live it. May they see it. May they understand it and believe it. Because you know what? We give away a lot of strength. We give away a lot of hope and we give away a lot of energy looking for things in this world to tell me that I have value, to tell me that I have worth. The love and respect of others, our accomplishments, our, our job. Here again, we keep everything on the horizontal. And Paul says, Lord, may they see how much you treasure them, that you actually call them your inheritance, what you're looking forward to, what you're anticipating coming into your life. You remember how we ended the last sermon? It's there in the highlights. Remember what the one driver of our life is to be? I am loved by God. And Paul's praying here that our relationship, our knowledge of Him, would come to understand just how treasured and valued we are to Him. And then Paul prays, you see this, this passage here, verse 19. Listen to this. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His vast strength? Short phrase there. You saw in the English one time the word power. Would you believe that in the Greek language there's actually four different words for power in that short phrase? Four different words for power. Now, without going into a Greek recitation, let me just tell you quickly the different nuances of each of those words. There's actual power. There's potential power. 
There's physical power and there's possessed power. What does all that mean? Well, let's just say suffice today, it's going to mean this. There is power upon power upon power beyond any kind of power that you will need to live, exist, and walk through this world even with its evil. Paul is very aware of evil. As we get near the end of this book, we're going to look a lot at spiritual warfare. We're going to look a lot at a hostile world. And Paul says, God's got all the power you need to cover your life. Now, as you and I are trying to, to get our arms around this power, to understand, what, what, what are you talking about here, where Paul? What, what does this power look like? Well, verses 20 to 23 give us a number of illustrations or manifestations of this power. This power upon power upon power. Paul says, you know what it looks like. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead and put Him at the right hand of power. And that's an awesome power. This is the power that conquers death. And then he says, this is the power that takes all powers and puts them under the feet of Jesus. And you see all these phrases for, for, for powers here, all these different titles. What this passage has in mind is, is both spiritual and physical. You know, under the spiritual, we've got two kinds of power. We've got demonic power and we've got angelic power. And the Scripture teaches us that there is a whole hierarchy underneath these powers. I mean, with these powers comes different levels, different titles in both the demonic and the angelic. All of those powers are going to be wrapped up and placed under the feet of Jesus. You know what this looks like, don't you? Look at our state flag. I mean, there's a foot there on the king, death to the king, death to that kind of power. All of the powers are going to be wrapped up and placed under the feet of Jesus. And then there's physical powers. Now, we know what those are. We know all those titles. There's there's presidents and dictators and emperors and governors. There's federal and national and local and judges and international. All of those powers are going to be wrapped up and placed under the feet of Jesus. You know what that means? If all of the powers could somehow become unified under one flag, spiritual and physical, if all of those powers could be brought together, God's going to take His power, just pick it up, place it right under the feet of Jesus, done. Man, that's power. This is the power that places Jesus as head over the church. He's our head. He is the source of our life. He's the source of our direction. That's power. This power is in you. This power is available to you. And you know what? I think most of us believe that. Probably not all of us. But most of us, we believe in this power. We believe in this God and this kind of power. But, but we have days. And we have events that seem to challenge that, don't we? At best, we wonder where it is. At worst, we wonder, is it not enough power? Was there not enough power there to stop April 16th? You know, it's interesting that that we use evil to deny the existence of God or challenge the existence of God or to challenge His power. But why don't we use the good to praise Him? Why doesn't humanity recognize all the goodness in the world and acknowledge Him? That's interesting, isn't it? The problem is we don't want God. See, evil, there's not. Folks, we don't believe in a yin and a yang. 
We don't believe in a, in a good force and a bad force. We don't believe in a cosmic battle between good and evil. There is no great battle going on between good and evil. We're not racing down to the finish line to see who's going to win. Evil's lost already, past tense. Evil has boundaries. It can't go anywhere that God doesn't permit. Now, that would seem to raise even worse questions. You mean God permits? God allows? Why? Well, one, because He gave us a free choice and we chose evil. And two, because most of us would never come into a relationship with God if there wasn't evil. For most of us, it's not goodness that drove us to the feet of a Savior. It's evil. It's problems. It's frustrations. It's a lack of answers. So God allows it to draw us to Him. So we will know how much He loves us. God's power guarantees this in your life. Number one, it guarantees your ultimate victory. You will win. You will conquer death. You will conquer sin. You will reign victorious with Christ. And you won't do that because of how powerful you are. You won't have that opportunity because of how good you are. You will have that opportunity for one reason. God's power. Secondly, God's power guarantees that you will have the ability to walk through a world in which there is darkness. In which there is chaos. And even more importantly, God's power guarantees that any darkness, any chaos that touches your life, He will use it. He will pick it up. There will be no darkness and chaos that will touch you that He can't or that He won't use for His glory and His purposes. I've always said I think probably the best picture of this in all the Bible is, is that Old Testament saint, Joseph. Man, Joseph knew what the evil of the world was. He knew what it was to be physically abused and rejected by a family. Sold into slavery by his own family. He knew what it was to try to live for God and do your best for God and, and live by God's rules and principles and still only have things get worse. Get falsely accused and thrown into prison. Joseph knew what it was, maybe worst of all, just to be forgotten. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. But then a day came in Joseph's life where he had a chance to get even. He had a chance to teach a lesson. He had a chance to do anything and everything he wanted to to all of the people that had hurt him and abused him along the way. He had that kind of power in his life. And there was a group of people that actually expected him to do just that. And he said, what? Oh, Oh, that? Oh, I've forgotten about that. Forgot? How, how could you forget? I mean, you think at least he was going to give him a good stern lesson. No, I, I don't even think about that anymore. How, how can you be so comfortable with an onslaught of evil like that? Because what you guys did in my life that was evil, God picked it up for my good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I think one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. There's no battle between good and evil. The only evil that takes place is what God is going to use for His glory, for His purposes, for His plan in your life. And that's where our strength, and that's where our hope, and that's where our answers are. 
But I think Paul would say to you today, please understand, if you're a kind of a casual believer, you're kind of relying on an event that happened, you know, back there somewhere I did that. And that's the extent of your faith and walk with God, Paul's saying. You, you, won't, you won't be ready. You, you won't have the strength. You won't have the hope. That relationship that God has won for you and that you do possess will not produce in your life what's needed to walk through this world. And so Paul prays, Oh God, would they really, really know You? Let's pray. Father, we just pause before You in this moment. And I know in my life, and it's, it's probably different for all of us, Lord, but, but we've reached levels. And we're satisfied. I, I've, I've got enough of God. I, I, I mean, I'm saved. It's got me saved. I, I, I've got enough of God. It, it, it makes me feel good about me. I, I mean, I look a lot better than a lot of other people. Lord, we confess to You our satisfaction. Lord, I don't know that many of us have reached a place like David where we've said, Oh God, I yearn for You like a a deer panting for streams of living water. When I think about what we want... God, there's a lot of things we want this week. There's a lot of answers we want. There's things we want to get fixed. I wonder how many of us in here today, God would say, there's only one thing I want in this week. I want to know you better. Lord, that's probably not what most of us are thinking. And in that, we've missed what we need to face and to deal with anything this week is going to bring. Oh God, may we rededicate ourselves. May we recommit ourselves to our relationship with You. And, and, and more than that, God, I pray that we would have a hunger and a thirst, that we would always want more of You. And Lord, while none of us wants evil, none of us wants bad things in our life, God, I pray that we would look forward to this week of head and all that it has, because whatever this week has, it's an opportunity to know You in a way that maybe I would have never known You had I not gone through that event. And Lord, sometimes it's the bad ones that give us the greatest opportunity. Help us to believe that. Help us to to make that our goal and what we desire and long for more than anything else. May we want You more than all the answers that we want in this world. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray.